everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. If it's true that some fashion never really goes out of style, what about some marketing strategies? On today's episode, Jim Davis, the chief customer officer at Buck Mason, shares how old school marketing efforts like catalogs and direct mail can be very relevant for direct-to-consumer brands today. Also, tune in for Jim's take on what the future will look like for emerging brands. Enjoy today's episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are calling in from Nebraska, right? Yes, Have you always lived there or maybe where did you grow up? I want to hear about like early days and understand where you came from. Yeah, I'm uh, originally from Florida. I grew up in Daytona Beach um, and probably a lot of weight and a lot of hair ago as a surfer and and stuff like that. Uh, And then started moving all over the country for various career opportunities and things like that. I actually was living in Santa Barbara, California before I moved to Omaha. And someone convinced me to leave Santa Barbara to come here and then left me at the job that I was at. So. <laughs> Wait, what? They left you? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. So it was an old, an old friend of mine from a different company back, back when I worked at Dell. It was a, a guy that I worked with there. And he convinced me to come to Omaha, Nebraska to work at Omaha Steaks and kind of help him run the consumer business from Santa Barbara, um, where I was, you know, I loved living there and I was doing quite well, but it was sort of an interesting career opportunity. And uh, three months after I started here, he quit and uh, went off to do this next thing and kind of left me hanging. So. Man, it'd be great if he like went to Santa Barbara. It was like, eh, yeah, this wasn't really a great exactly. decision. <laughs> so in your earlier days of your career, maybe like when you were coming out of school, what did you think you were going to be doing? 
Uh, so I, I went to grad school for three years with the intention of being a math professor. Yeah. Um, okay. And I, I pursued the PhD um, and just kind of got sick of school, to be honest with you, after about three years and decided to leave before I finished the degree. Um, probably regret number one in life. I don't know. <laughs> but um, it, it would have been a very different trajectory had I done that, obviously. But uh, I, you know, it was sort of a, a weird time in the US economy. It was in the early 90s um, and the job market wasn't awesome. So I actually taught high school for a few years. Um, and I am a horrible high school teacher. So I uh, got out of that. One of my best friends has been doing it since 1990. Um, and he's one of the best teachers I've ever met in my life, which is sort of my sounding board for how poor I am at that. But um, he, uh, so I, you know, I had some opportunities because of the degree in math and, and some real world experience I had using it to go off and work in the investment industry for a little while at a small quant firm, um, kind of running research for the small business in Central Florida. And, you know, I, I learned how to use databases and write SQL and do modeling and a bunch of other things along the way. And I had someone offer me what sounded like a great job to go build response models for direct mail, which I had no idea at the time what that meant um, in 1998 and uh, moved to South Florida and work at a cruise line. It sounded, you know, exotic and fabulous. So, <laughs> so, so I did it. Uh, and it was, a, it was kind of an interesting experience because they were uh, one of the first cruise lines in the, in the late 90s. Everyone was still buying cruises through uh, uh, travel agents and things like that. And things like booking.com and Travelocity didn't exist back then. We were trying to sell directly to consumers through our website, through our call center. And it was a great idea and a great model that obviously came to fruition later, but um, they were way too early in the process. All the uh, travel agents ganged up on them and badmouthed the cruise line and they ended up going bankrupt. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, but that was kind of your first like dipping your toe in the marketing world? That was Yeah, that was my first marketing job. So I was basically helping them use their customer data and prospect data to go find new passengers to take advantage of the passengers that we had and all the data that we knew about them um, and figure out what the right ways to attract them to book another cruise would be either through direct mail or email or an outbound calling activity and create optimized contact strategies to uh, to use those three channels in particular um, with direct mail and outbound calling being the more expensive ones um, to figure out how to retain customers and get new ones. Yeah. So how do you see from what you were doing back then? I mean, I hear what you're saying you're doing and I'm like, oh, that's still very relevant today. Yep. It's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not something like, oh, yeah, now we have these new things and you don't really do that anymore. What do you see in the world today when it comes to using those channels compared to back then? I think that the the sophistication and the level of personalization that's possible um, if done well in all three of those channels, plus many more digital channels, has significantly improved. I think what you can know about a consumer, um, either through third-party purchase data or just by observing their interactions with you and your properties in a more detailed way than was possible back then, can give you more insight into how you should approach them and, and when they might be actually in market for the product or service that you're trying to you know convince them to buy from you, basically. Um, so those are the pieces that I think have, have improved along the way. 
I'm, you know, I, because I came into the world through um, an analytics viewpoint, I think that a lot of people, especially sort of in the 2010s timeframe when digital marketing and paid search and things like that were um, sort of the core of how people were starting to do most of their marketing, um, they approached it very differently than some of us older folks did because we, we had been doing the same kind of analytics about who to talk to about what, when in non-real-time bidding strategy kind of environments. And so there was a lot of optimization required to ensure that you were kind of optimizing that marketing expense. But it turns out that all that stuff about lifetime value analysis and figuring out whether or not it was worth bidding on me versus bidding on my neighbor um, when they were looking for, you know, cruise lines to the Caribbean or cruises to the Caribbean, um, the same kind of mathematics applied. You just had to figure out how to scale it faster and apply it to a lot more opportunities than kind of the prime world or the outbound calling world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although now, what do you think about direct mail? That's been like an interesting conversation on this show around. Some people are betting like big on it again. And I don't know how do you feel about that? So I'm the guy who convinced the CEO at Urban Outfitters to kill the catalog. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so you feel pretty strongly then, maybe? But but that was, you know, I mean, I was marketing to 19-year-olds in 2012, and I do think the world has changed. And I think that very much like what happened with SMS marketing, I think SMS marketing kind of had this huge surge back in um, kind of 2010, 2011, and everybody thought it was going to be the next big thing. And then it kind of died for a while. And now it's, it's, you know, back. I think people engage with it more. I think the same thing's happening with print to some degree. We seem like we're getting back to the point that we were at back in the early 2000s where people are starting to overmail their customers and potential prospects again, though. And there's a lot more competition because now all of these small DTC brands have sort of either on their own or through various agencies that they're working with discovered the channel. And so I get a stack of catalogs this thing probably twice a week, right? That's kind of like what it was back like back in the 90s when there were tons of catalog um, direct companies out there. But I, I use it at Buck Mason. I think it's a very effective channel. I think that it's still somewhat questionable as a, an effective acquisition channel when you reach a certain size, when your customer base gets to be a certain size and you've kind of penetrated all of those um, cooperative databases out there to a certain degree. I think the, the, the acquisition opportunity starts to erode pretty quickly at, at a certain point. But as an acquis- as a uh, retention tool and just kind of keeping people engaged with the business in a more tactile way, I still think it has a lot of value. And I think if you, I think you need to not think about catalogs the way people did 20 years ago, where that was the store and you paginate the catalog based off of how you want people to buy or what you want them to buy. I think it should be a little bit more kind of inspiration and really just driving people to come into your shop or go to your website and kind of check out more, basically. Yeah. I mean, what's nice is that you've kind of been able to see the transformation of things like yeah. direct mail. Do you ever feel like you look around and it's like, history is just like repeating itself and you're like guys I mean with all these like new DTC founders out there being like whoa we can mail people like I mean to me I'm like that's a pretty novel concept and you kind of just forget that you know what it used to look like but do you feel like people aren't really learning except unless you've been there before it is kind of interesting you know the conversations you have with founders for instance Um, I, I did a little stint during the pandemic where I was consulting with a few different companies 
And people who are just trying to do direct mail or catalog for the first time have no concept of things like segmentation strategies and uh, kind of contact frequency strategies if you're going to mail a lot, how offers and covers may impact what you're doing in the same way that kind of the lead image in an email, uh, email might impact your, uh, your click rates and things like that because they just never grow up in that world where like that was the only thing that you were marketing i mean i i used to when i was at office depot we used to send that crazy 900 page reference book for everything you could buy from office depot and there were people that had put little post-it notes in that thing you could tell because back then everybody used to track performance by putting a prefix on SKUs. so if you ordered with this SKU, i knew that it came out of this catalog basically versus another SKU. We had people that had held on to those things for five or eight years because we could tell by the SKUs that they were ordering from when they would call in or go to the website and things like that. And I don't, it's obviously not like that anymore, but I think that the the mechanisms around how to get people interested, if you're getting that stack, like I was saying, um, it's three inches high in your mailbox a few times a week. What's going to make people stop at yours when they're just sifting through it to throw it in the recycling bin, probably, and things like that? And then once you get them to open it, what's going to keep them engaged? What's going to make them want to leave it on their coffee table for a while and kind of keep it around for a few weeks? Yeah. I always think, um, have you seen Trader Joe's pamphlet? Like to me, like, that's great storytelling. Whoever's writing that, you actually want to read it. I mean, it's like yeah. fun. And then, of course, you're like, OK, I need these ingredients to go with this, you know, right. fun story and dish that they just created. I think that's like a good example of something I want to read versus I oftentimes will get this B2B magazine for all these. I mean, it is kind of like an Office Depot type magazine, but they're like, here's all the things your company might need. It's 100 pages. And I'm like, well, yeah. I'm not. No, I like every time I'm like, that is not how we operate anymore. I don't want everything in this magazine. And it's like really random, like hardware pieces to like fans. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know. There's no personalization in that one. There was a, a word that was being used for a while, um, probably like around like 2008 to 2012 or 13 called Magalog. And the idea was, is that it was supposed to be that uh, kind of perfect blend of storytelling and commerce and you know it's sort of that holy grail that everybody looks for i think in their website experiences of content and commerce kind of coming together in a really interesting way so people don't even really understand that you're selling to them and that they're they're about to buy something you know all of a sudden they're just like giving their credit card information or whatever and oops you know it happened and I think it kind of came in and went away, but I think some of the best catalogs that I see today are good blends of that. Not in the, I don't know if you're familiar with Jay Peterman, but um, yeah, it's it's an old catalog. And they, if you ever look at one of those, um, they're small, they usually mail in what's called a digest format now. But there's these like, fantastic tales of why this piece of clothing came to be, you know, like some safari in oh, Africa. That's great. Like, and you know, they used to make fun of Jay Peterman on Seinfeld all the time back in the day. So, but he's still around and, and I still see a Jay Peterman catalog, you know, that's sort of like the one extreme of kind of telling stories. But I think that the people that have done a better job, I think the Trader Joe's example is a good one. I, you know, I think that Dollar Shave Club with some of the inserts that they have, you know, and, and it is sort of like 13-year-old boy humor, but it's funny and engaging. And back before they got bought out, I think it kind of went beyond the razor and the razor blade for them and, and kind of kept you engaged in the brand a little bit and stuff like that. 
I, I think that brands can probably do a lot more of that kind of stuff. It's expensive to do print, even when it's an insert. So you need to make the most out of it. And it needs to be an engaging piece of content and not just a piece of advertising somebody wants to throw away. Yeah. So when it comes to storytelling, I feel like you're probably pretty good at it when I look at your history. I mean, you rebranded the image of some pretty iconic brands. Uggs is one of them I saw yeah. that, you know, you came in and rebranded it. So Uggs weren't ugly, which I thought was funny because that was such a <laughs> such a theme for a while. Like everyone thought it was ugly until they weren't anymore. And all of a sudden now they're yeah. super cool. I want to <laughs> hear what that looks like when you come into a company and you are trying to help them turn around the image of like basically their entire company. Same with Lucky. I think you did that with Lucky brand too, coming in and trying to make it cool again. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the Ugg story is an interesting one because it's a, it's obviously a brand that for a certain generation was like the it dude for a while, um, especially during kind of the early half of the 2000s. And then um, what happened was is they, they sort of went out of vogue with younger consumers, but they still have this very, very strong core base that just kind of stayed with them. So a lot of brands have that happen to them, right? And their customer base ages with them. And so the problem is not one of, you know, quality of product or anything having to do with the items themselves having changed. Um, you know, there, there were some structural issues with the company and things like over distribution, like it, it, scarcity matters. And if you see an up boot everywhere you go, including what you consider to be a pretty down um, kind of down market shoe store or something like that. I think it makes you think about the brand very differently. So, you know, and, and I'm not going to say I'm responsible for all of this stuff. There was a collection of people at Deckers at the time that were trying to reinvigorate the UGG brand that all had really good ideas. But I think the big temples were make it a little bit more scarce, make sure that you're only selling it at places that you feel like have the same um, kind of consumer equivalents to the level of luxury that we felt like the footwear we were making was, you know, kind of step one, clean up distribution. The other one is, um, you know, who is it that you're trying to go after? And so we did a lot of market research around who the boot and the slipper might still resonate with. It was in this younger group of consumers that we had sort of, you know, lost traction with. And I think that some really interesting things emerged there. Um, you know, at the time, um, back in 2015, the Timberland yellow boot was still sort of like the predominant piece of footwear that you would see amongst many, many hip hop artists. But there was this substrate that it turned on to this boot Ugg was making called the New Mel. And it was very tiny at the time. There was a little bit of hit in social media around it, but we kind of hung on to that. And in a background sort of way, working with publishers like Complex and, you know, even doing a booth at Complex Con one year, started to find relevance with that community in a very authentic way without changing what we were doing, but just trying to understand what they found interesting about it and try to deliver more of that basically um and, it, and that strategy started to work the big unlock was you know when andrea who took over as the brand president really wanted to make that explode though and convinced everybody we needed to in invest more in working with personalities that would kind of lead us down that path further we were making a lot of inroads, but I think that big unlock when you start working with like, you know, Lil Nas X and, and stuff like that completely changed the business. Um, and so it's a, 
it's a making sure that you understand who your audience is that you're trying to go after and what they're going to find appealing and not trying to do the members only jacket thing and just hold on to the 80s nostalgia and stuff like that about your brand but find out what's next for it but keeping the fundamentals of the product integrity and quality intact as you do it basically thinking about pe firms like how do you feel about when you see a brand being owned by a pe firm to me that's always like oh that's a little scary bad sign i don't know but i think generally you know, the history of PE firms buying brands means that they're they're either looking for a way to bleed a bunch of profit out of it for about a decade, or they want to tr- figure out how they can cut costs so that there can be some kind of an equity event and they can get, you know, 10 times their money back or whatever the multiple is that they're searching for. There are more strategic firms out there these days, though, that seem to be putting groups of businesses together and giving them the capital that they need to be able to grow in a more sustainable way and not have to sort of, you know, do what businesses like Allbirds did, where they grew really, really fast, probably got way out in front of their skis. And now when you look at their valuation and how much it dropped off even before, you know, the calamity going on in the stock market over the last couple of months. You can tell that there was a lot of vaporware there, right? Um, And as a guy who used to work in the footwear business, I sensed that all along with them. I thought they had some really good things they were doing. But then because they had so much VC money and there was this pressure to kind of get big fast and garner a high valuation, I think they lost track of who they were as a brand and as a business and kind of ended up with nothing at the end of the day. And, And maybe they'll survive and maybe they won't. But I think that there are some PE firms out there that are doing some more interesting things with businesses where it's like, this business is profitable. If I can help it with, you know, these types of back office kind of infrastructure things or help them be more sophisticated in certain ways, they can probably continue to be profitable in this fashion without having to completely bloat, you know, their costs their acquisition costs and other things like that. And and they can have a very long runway as a business and not have to continue to grow 25% every year, you know, for three or four years in a row, 10, 15% growth is fine. And I I think the the firm that owns Taylor Stitch, I think is a good example of that. There's a few others out there that are taking that kind of a model. I think I appreciate that. It's it's kind of like what strategics like an Asina retail used to try to do, I think. Um, but I think most of the strategics are are now kind of more like the old PE firms used to be. Like you look at what Spark is doing with all of those um, kind of you know quasi defunct brands that they bought, like Forever Twenty One, Lucky Brand, Brooks Brothers, and stuff like that. I mean, the the real emphasis there is to just try to make the mall properties still be full, so that it looks like you know they they have full tenancy and all of these Simon properties and things like that. And then the other part of partnership, if all those businesses go bankrupt, they own all the licensing for it. So it's a harvesting deal at the end of the day. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. When looking at the environment today, 
Before we jump to Buck Mason, I want to kind of hear what, like, how do you view this landscape? Because, I mean, I've heard so many different opinions on this show around what's about to come with all these D2C companies. You know, you're saying that you've spotted kind of trouble with like the Allbirds and companies like that who are maybe forced to grow quickly. And um, you see that in the world of VC of, you know, I'll invest in you and you need to return the fund. And now I'm going to own so much of your company that like there's less incentives for the founders to even keep trying. Like, what do you think is to come for the next couple of years in like the world of commerce? I mean, I think that the pure DTC company and its ability to sort of bring a product to market and grow without, um, you know, having a lot of play in marketplaces like Amazon is going to be far harder for the next 10 years than it was for the previous 10 years, mostly because acquisition costs and ease of acquisition that was largely facilitated in the Facebook ecosystem is evaporating as quickly as you can imagine, right? So the, the ability to just acquire a bunch of new customers and create awareness is, is going to become much more difficult, which means that a lot of these guys are going to have to try to figure out how to have some kind of wholesale relationships or go right to marketplace earlier in their life cycles than they have today. And when you look at some of the businesses like Biori out there, they sort of have that blend of, you know, doing some wholesale and doing their own stores and, you know, and in a very successful website that probably in the short term is going to be the more natural model. But I think if department store shakeout continues to happen and even the Nordstrom's of the world struggle more, they're not going to have that avenue either. And so it feels more like what's happening in Europe and Asia to me, where finally in North America, marketplaces are going to kind of take over. Here, it's predominantly Amazon. But I think that when you look at um, some of the entrants that have gotten a strong, strong foothold in other places like Zalando in Europe, who just bought, you know, Complex, by the way, they just bought a publisher, which is a weird kind of synergy if you mm, think about it, right? Interesting. And then all of the Alibaba properties in Asia, um, I think that that is kind of the future of commerce in general and not just digital commerce. It's already there for all of the beauty startups and a lot of the CPG startups, right? Like they, when they talk about DTC businesses, they're really talking about marketplace businesses and Target, Walmart, and, and Amazon. Um, I think that it will start to leak into the other sectors as we go through the next five to 10 years. Mm, so how can maybe if a brand is just, you know, early days today, how would you advise them when thinking about, you know, their go-to-market strategy or how should they even think about that now? Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, I said all that. It's like it's the doom and gloom of, of you know, marketplace hell, right? But um, <laughs> the I think the reality is, though, is that some some businesses can still come to market. And if they're offering a unique and interesting and compelling omni-channel experience backed up by very, very strong product that's differentiated in some meaningful way in the marketplace and not just chasing trend. And, you know, in in the case of apparel in particular, there's got to be something else there that's that really strong point of view that they have that they feel like is completely defensible and they can build a moat around it. But I think in-store experience and, and that high level of experience is still something that can exist and not only in that kind of department store environment um, or luxury department store. So I do believe 
that if if you're able to figure out how to have a strong omni-channel business strategy right out of the gate, and you're thinking about your website, your own stores, and then probably some combination of wholesale and or what your marketplace play is, and you've built your business plan around when to layer in different things and how to create differentiation of product offering so that some of those channels are probably always rolling back in some way to your core DTC offering. DTC still has a place in the world, but you have to think about those other opportunities as key points of acquisition that you know you want to be able to to have because it'll end up being cheaper than what's going to happen with um, you know the other avenues of digital acquisition going forward, most likely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like. We were in a place, of course, where any founder could really start a company and, you know, try and sell anything, even if it didn't really right. exist. And now it's moving to a place where it feels like you do have to kind of tackle everything at once. Like you have to work on the wholesale while working on the product, while thinking about your logistics and supply chain. And yeah. it seems like the world's actually getting like harder, at least here in the U.S., to start a company and yeah. moving to a place where maybe VC money is needed, whereas for, you know, the past couple years, you've actually seen VCs pull back and DDC founders being like, that's fine. We'll, we're still going to launch our company right. and we don't need a bunch of money to launch. It feels like it's getting trickier now to be a new founder in the world of commerce being like, I want to launch with this kind of brand. I think especially if you're making any kind of tactile good, if, if, you're, a, if you're a services or you know, a SaaS company and, and those kind of things, um, I think the runway is still different. I do believe that even those companies are going to start getting impacted by higher costs of acquisition though, because many of them were very reliant, even in the B2B space on um, you know, pretty strong, pretty inexpensive uh, digital marketing capabilities that I, I think are starting to erode across the board. But anybody that's trying to make clothing or other types of hard goods and things like that, it probably is going to require some kind of investment because I think the capital to start something up is going to change because you're going to have to have some kind of physical presence and or a staff that can help you, um, you know, do things like sell into wholesale accounts and or kind of manage marketplaces in an effective way. And there, there are plenty of you know, kind of great agency relationships in the world that you can have to get those kind of things started, but they all cost money. Yep, I agree. All right, so now we can jump to where you're at today, Buck Mason, a company that I, as far as I know, did not take VC money. They turned down a Shark Tank offer because I think yeah. they were asking for a lot of equity from their company. <laughs> yeah. So this is a company that's <laughs> been focused from what I think on profitability and making the best t-shirts in the very beginning. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, first, can you tell them what is Buck Mason and then what drew you to this company? Yeah, so, so Buck Mason um, is uh, coming up on 10 years old. It'll be 10 years old next year. And it was founded by um, a couple of guys who were neighbors but didn't really know each other that well in, in Venice, California. And, you know, they, they would like see each other to say hi and things like that and stuff. But through a, a third party that knew both of them kind of got connected up to actually have a conversation about doing something together. They initially uh, thought the business would be more of a uh, kind of a, a, an outfit in a box kind of thing. They had this idea of selling like a pair of jeans and a few t-shirts or something like that. It was like a box deal and you would just order that and we would send it to you. 
but they became very obsessed with building a great t-shirt at a good value and making it right in LA, um, which they ended up, that became kind of the, the iconic curved hem slug t-shirt that we sell today. You roll the clock forward um, and a few years into that, they, they started to bolster their design and operations and sourcing capabilities and really were able to start offering more head-to-toe dressing in multiple categories. T-shirts is still the largest category within the business. Um, and you know, we still take pride in the core t-shirts that we've always made, but we're also always looking at introducing new fabrics and new ideas that we can bring to the core t-shirt line um, to keep it interesting, but also to kind of keep pushing the envelope on what a t-shirt can be quite honestly with, you know, some, some cool things that we do about using heavier yarns, even though it's a short sleeve tee that people love and who knew in the middle of summer, they want to wear a heavier t-shirt. And, you know, interesting things like cotton hemp uh, mixed yarns and things like that that we've developed. But the, the amount of share of closet that we can now have because of, you know, the, the stance that we've taken around developing really iconic outerwear pieces and jackets, some really interesting unstructured suiting we call the carry-on suit that we introduced last year. And then also just, you know, everything that you can imagine in button downs that would take it to the office or just for a nice casual evening out and stuff like that. We can, you can buy all of that from Buck Mason now. So within the span of a short few years, we became a real player in menswear outside of just the jeans and t-shirt business. It's kind of funny if you go look at old pictures of uh, the first store in New York, it actually um, on the windows for years had painted letters on it that said jeans and t-shirts sold here. That's um, great. <laughs> and, that was, and that was kind of, you know, they, and they literally just had, you know, somebody come up and paint that on the windows, right? But, um, but it, it's more than that now, which creates complexity in the business. And then the other thing that we did um, in 2021 is we introduced the women's line, starting with t-shirts because that was our, our kind of core expertise. And that grew very, very quickly. And now the women's line, um, you know, starting this spring has introduced, you know, sweaters and dresses and bottoms and shorts, um, lots of different top opportunities, um, both in, in button down and knit tops and things like that. So we feel like that, you know, the, the goal here at the end of the day is to create the next great American apparel brand and fill the void that was left by a, a lot of, you know, companies like J. Crew um, and Polo, honestly, that have left both in the menswear business, but we also think in terms of like iconic women's wear, um, they've kind of left this void in the women's wear business as well. Yep, that's awesome. Okay, so what did you, I mean, I'm sure you're thinking about those other companies, the J. Crews of the world. What do you see that they didn't do? Like, why didn't they create an iconic brand that maybe they should have? I think J. Crew actually had like a really good chance of doing. They, they did. And I think that they probably were there. And obviously, Polo did, right? I mean, I, I, when, you, when you look at where Polo um, is and, and was and the various iterations and sub-brands of it, like the URL and things like that, there's, there's a lot to learn from there. 
I think on the, the J crew front, they, I, it feels like they probably lost their way a little bit in the sense of making sure that the quality of what they were bringing to market and making sure that they weren't getting out in front of what the demand was for what they were doing. And then, you know, once you do that, you get into this endless cycle of having to be on sale because you have too much inventory to deal with. And so you have to have a sale and then next year you have to comp that sale. And then, you know, it just becomes this, um, you know, tower of, of uh, you know, downward spiral that dilutes your brand value in the eyes of consumers because now they're just going to sit around and wait for the next sale. Right. We don't do that. And I think, you know, you, you combine the historical references with which we draw on to inspire our designs coupled with you know being very attuned to making products that will last and expecting that you're going to have like this polo I'm wearing in your closet for many years to come it's not something you bought this year and after you wash it three or four times you know it isn't wearable anymore it actually looks better the more you wash it because of the dyeing processes that we use and things like that that I think is is where businesses like J. Crew probably either never found their way or lost their way, but we stay completely committed to that as one of the core pillars of the brand. That's awesome. I didn't know about the historical reference piece. Like, can you tell me what that looks like, or what are you tying back to? Yeah. So the you know the design team um, and, and the head of design here, I think you know is is largely responsible for the, uh, the his name's Kyle Fitzgibbons is largely responsible for, you know, our Ford lean in this area, but they do a lot of research when they're looking at, you know, if we want to make a leather jacket, what are the iconic kind of Americana leather jackets that men have worn over the decades? And where is the time period where like that first thing that everybody really loved, like that first moto or that first bomber jacket, what did it look like? What was the very first one that then everybody copied later? And we'll actually go out and acquire not only, you know, images and things like that, but to the degree that we can actually get vintage items and stuff. We'll go out and acquire that um, and the team will figure out, okay, so this is what they created. What is the, what is sort of the modern person's version of that article or that garment? And how do we start to go about designing that? And what are some features that maybe, you know, the, the guy in 1948 didn't necessarily think about or need that maybe the, the guy in 2022 does? Um, so that we can update a little bit and stay as true to what the original intent of that garment was. And a lot of things in our line, you know, came to be that way. And on the women's side, it's not a, a different process. It's just different decades of reference in terms of, um, you know, where we want to draw on um, for, you know, how the modern woman can dress. But it's but it, do it in a way so that you're not chasing trend or chasing fashion, which is how that item is going to be able to live in your closet season after season, right? Because it was never, and it's not that it's not fashionable, like that's obviously not the right way to say it. It's that it's sort of timeless. And that's what we're always looking for is there are timeless elements of every man and woman's wardrobe that they can always own. And we want to have a hundred percent share of that for them basically. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a very cool process. I didn't know that was what was happening behind the scenes. Do you ever feel like you guys will run out of something? I mean, after you go through so many decades, you're like, all right, I got the best, you know, white button up tee, the high-waisted jeans and whatever. 
It's, I mean, I think that there's the element of, you know, you can kind of keep selling, um, you know, the core articles over and over and over again. The existing consumer may want it in a different color if it's something like, you know, polos again or jeans or um, an interesting chino or something like that um, or an interesting shirt dress. And then on the new product development side, there's a lot of untapped things out there that we haven't really, um, you know, kind of gotten into yet that we could. And there's a whole area of slightly more luxurious goods that we probably um, could start to explore a little bit more. And you'll see some of that in in, um, upcoming seasons, including this fall from Buck Mason. And so that's a whole avenue that I think is completely unexplored in the business. And I think the design team would, would agree with that, which is why they're, they're kind of looking in that direction. There's also, um, you know, the, the workwear inspired areas of American sportswear that are somewhat unexplored by us. And we feel like we can do it better than the Dickies and the Carhartts of the world because of our process. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that's great. So what drew you to the company? Like, what did you see that you were like, I can come in and help you guys a lot? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they had accomplished a lot and created this really interesting, very profitable business that hadn't really matured to the point that certain processes like what gets referred to as go to market processes. So, you know, when you when you create apparel or shoes or anything, really, there's the design ideas that start way back at the beginning but really even ahead of that there's financial considerations or growth ideas or consumer relevance conversations that you need to be having so that you can figure out how you start to create a line that aligns to an audience that you feel like you really want to own from a market share perspective And then after design starts their part of the process, you have to figure out how you're going to go to market. And even though we have fairly simple, um, you know, distribution opportunities, it's Buck Mason stores or, you know, buckmason.com, you still have to figure out timing and assortment and what your marketing strategies are going to be in your positioning and your creative and your brand presentation. And those can alter a little bit depending on the line and the season. So helping sort of build Um, that bigger process around how we go to market and then starting to bring more intelligence and a little bit more kind of analytic acumen into things like new website enhancements, the way that we invest our marketing dollars, the channels that we choose to be in, how you move money around between channels um, when things are or aren't working in a really dynamic way to kind of optimize expenses and stuff like that were the pieces I thought I could kind of add value in. Hmm, got it. So where are you investing your marketing dollars? I know before we started <laughs> recording, you were like, mm, the world's kind of changing and a lot of the yeah, digital marketing activities that we've all relied on are not really going to keep working. What are you building right now to prepare for the future we're in right now? So we're we're lucky um, in, you know, strategic. I, I think it's, you know, it's a combination of both um, in that we have a pretty strong PR activity that, um, you know, the the way kind of PR morphed over the last decade or so is that a lot of publishers are out there just sort of like writing about things that they can earn affiliate commission on, right? So, you know, take your pick of, of your favorite publications, but those listicles 
the brands end up paying some percentage back to the publishers, right? But we have a very strong business in that that creates a fairly consistent traffic and revenue stream for our dot-com throughout the year and actually is driving some store traffic based off of post-purchase surveys and things like that as well. So I'm looking at how do we sort of bolster that maybe even more to supplement some of what we're losing out on in kind of the Facebook world while we start to test into other avenues that would be net new for us like podcast marketing. Um, as well as, um, you know, testing in spaces like TikTok, um, you know, we'll start running our first TikTok ads probably early July. And I think that social isn't dead necessarily, but it may be time to, to kind of move on to what the next channel set is. So we'll look at Snap, we'll look at TikTok, um, and we'll continue to optimize what we do in, in the Facebook environment and things like that. We still believe in our catalogs from a, a print perspective on the retention side of, of marketing, not so much on the acquisition side. Um, and then I think we need to start exploring some things that are kind of outside of our comfort zone from the kinds of content that we have created historically, which means for us thinking about stronger video content, some of it more polished that could live in things like, you know, connected TV spaces for streaming ads and stuff like that. Um, and going a little bit further up the funnel and trying to create a little bit more kind of mid funnel awareness type of advertising that's still somewhat product focused and not just straight brand advertising. And, you know, we're, we're not going to ignore where there might be opportunities with distribution to help, you know, be those new avenues of acquisition, wholesale included. So. Cool. Well, it sounds like an exciting future and a lot of work to do. Thanks for coming on the show today, Jim, and sharing everything that you're up to. Where can people follow along with your journey and uh, say hi? Yeah, I mean, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I uh, I will accept almost anyone's friendship there um, and, and respond to messages and things like that as frequently as I can. Um, and you can you can check me out on Instagram if you want. But you're going to get a lot of pictures of the golf course in my backyard and whiskey. Uh, but it's my Omaha life. So perfect. I'll follow you there. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. All right. Thank you. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.